I'd like to welcome everyone here. I'm glad we are here together today in the house of the Lord. We will continue our study of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, going to read verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. One of the great challenges in studying the book of Hebrews is dealing with the question, to whom is this written? For one, many of the illustrations and Old Testament references are rather foreign to us. Another reason I believe that uh, the book was, is, was originally, it was a sermon, uh, and it would have been read post-resurrection uh, congregation, very much like the congregation that is gathered together here today. Within this congregation, like our own this morning, there would have been three categories of listeners. The first group of listeners would have been those who were true followers of Jesus, those who were saved through his bloody death and resurrection. They were, number one, fully committed, fully convinced of the inferiority of the old covenant sacrificial system and its inability to make them righteous with a holy God. Secondly, they would have also been convinced of their inability to save themselves from eternal punishment that they deserve due to their personal sinfulness. But there would have been a second group as well. And that second group could be described as those who were intellectually convinced that Jesus was indeed superior to Moses. That is, that Jesus was superior to the old covenant system. Unlike the first group, though, this group had not acted on what they seemed to be intellectually convinced of. Our third group, though, within the congregation are those who are not convinced at all. They likely were still fully committed to the old temple rituals and washings that were mentioned earlier in this chapter that we're in today. The congregation gathered together this morning here at WMC likely, or does, certainly contain this same type of people. There are those this morning who certainly have confessed their sinfulness and believed in Jesus as the only way of salvation. There are those here who are convinced that there really is something to this Jesus thing, but they haven't taken the next step of faith. To this group, I would ask this question. What's holding you back? But there's also a third group here this morning. Those who are at best indifferent to this saving gospel. Or maybe you've been led astray by one of the false teachings that permeate the broader church today. Maybe you're here because you were told you had to be here. Maybe you're outright against 
anything that smacks of Christianity or the Bible. Maybe you're relying on your own goodness or attempts to keep some sort of law to save yourself. I'm a good person. Let me say this this morning. I am so glad that God has seen fit to bring each of you here this morning, regardless of which group you fall into. In verse 9, we read, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So in the previous verses of this chapter, uh, the, uh, the author was warning the congregation not to fall away, to not return to this Old Covenant symbolic system, which was never intended ever to be an end in and of itself. But instead, the purpose was to point ahead to a more glorious time when the real thing would be present. The reality is this, that we all need to hear these words this morning. Regardless of which group it is that you find yourself in, Though I understand Scripture, though, to teach this, and I understand that we cannot lose our salvation. At the same time, there is no doubt that, number one, there are those who, due to improper understanding of the gospel, are convinced that they are saved, when indeed they are not. There are also those who are truly saved, but have, due to selfishness and weakness, allowed sin a foothold in their lives, and it's stealing our joy. Though I am convinced that these hard words, hard words need to be regularly preached in our churches to Christian and non-Christian alike, it can be very easy to forget to encourage and reassure God's people that these harsh words may not be directed at them directly. I was reminded of this uh, in, in a conference a year ago that Becky and I attended when the speaker pointed out that inevitably sometimes when you throw stones at goats, you will on occasion hit a sheep squarely between the eyes. And I believe that this is what the writer of the Hebrews is attempting to deal with here. He's spoken very harshly in a very general way to this group of people. Inevitably, some of those who were truly God's children were struck squarely between the eyes with a stray stone and may have been questioning the pastor's aim. Was it off? Or did he hit the target he was throwing it at? Notice here the author's use of the word beloved. This is the only place in the entire book that the recipients are referred to in this manner. That's an important note. The word that is translated beloved here is the same word that we see frequently in 1 John, where repeatedly John uses this endearing term to refer to those who are the children of God. The writer of Hebrews is reassuring God's children within the congregation that in spite of his harsh words just a moment ago, he knows that there are indeed sheep among the goats. Notice, though, that he's not speaking hopefully. He's not basing this on, well, I hope there are some. It's evidenced by the words that he uses here. 
carries a weight of conviction. Other translations use the phrase, we are convinced, we are confident. This verse is very crucial as we proceed because it makes it very clear, I believe, who the writer is reassuring and, by extension, who he is not assuring, reassuring, remembering our three groups. Verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. Throughout God's word, it is clearly taught that evidence for those who are truly God's children is found in their love and conduct toward other children of God. John 13.35 simply states this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's important at this point, though, I think, to point something out. There's an incredibly significant phrase that precedes the part of this verse commending these Hebrew Christians for their service to one another. Notice it there in verse 10, for his name. The entire commendation of these Hebrew saints, and by extension us, hinges on this truth. Only service that is done in obedience to and for the Lord is truly commendable. Let's not kid ourselves this morning. Those who are unsaved are just as capable of doing good. And sadly, they often do a better job than the church does. So what separates good works in the church and good works outside the church? I think it can be summed up in one word. Why? That is why these good works are done. Good works done within the church are to be done in obedience to the Lord and therefore are to be done in obedience to what his word teaches. Truthfully, if we miss this, we miss the whole point of this verse. For that matter, we would miss the entire point of the passage. And I would say, frankly, we would miss all teaching within Scripture regarding proper conduct towards one another within the family of God. Sadly, many within the church have missed this and continue to miss it, instead choosing to adopt a worldly rather than biblical definition of what it means to love within the body of Christ, the church. Romans 12 gives us a good list of how true Christians are to strive to live. Remember how that chapter begins. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So let's flip back to, to that chapter just briefly and have a look at some of what is said there. Romans chapter 12, just going to read uh, 9, to, 9 to 21. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. 
contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be over. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we have there a rather exhaustive definition of what true Christian love is to be. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time there this morning, other than to point out in verse nine what I think are two very important qualifiers. For all of what follows, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. God's people within his family are to define as evil what he defines as evil, and define as good what he defines as good. We cannot allow the world or sentimentality to define evil and good within God's family. It's clear that as John Owen said, faith, if it is a living faith, will be a working faith, and we ought to look upon our obedience as our work. We can take hope this morning in the knowledge that God will not overlook our efforts to be faithfully obedient in our love for fellow saints within the family of God. As we see here, he affirms his people in that. Let us make it our goal, as Romans 12.10 tells us, to outdo one another in showing honor. In verse 11 we read, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. There's a great temptation today to live strictly in and for the here and now. This is how the world lives. We don't need to look any further than the average advertising campaign. It's all about here and now. It's all about living your best life now. Unlike non-Christians, though, God's people have real hope. Any hope that is found outside of God and his word is nothing more than shifting sand. Seemingly solid for a time, But eventually, the winds of change stirred up by whims and fancies of the moment or whatever popular movement is afoot will topple any structure so foolishly built on such a footing. The encouragement here is to employ the same diligence to the pursuit to have the full assurance of hope as what was being commended to lovingly serving each other that was giving clear evidence of true faith. It would seem to me that we have here a twofold statement. On the one hand, 
I believe the writer is encouraging those who are within that first group of people I talked about earlier, who through faith in Christ are God's children, Christians. There's an assurance there. But I also see here, maybe implicitly, a challenge to the other two groups of people to wait no longer, but to consider the evidence already presented and embrace Jesus for who he says he is. One of the challenges that we have as Christians living as we do today between Jesus' first and second advents is this. Is this hope for today? Or is this hope a future hope? Well, my conviction is that the correct answer to that is yes. The hope is not an either-or hope. It's a both-and. As we live in this fallen world, we can live right now with the hope that A, our good, loving, and sovereign God is fully in control of all things and that he is working all things out for his good, for the good of those who love him, for his purpose, and for his glory. And secondly, we can also live in the hope that one day all things will be made right. Notice the twofold hope. God is in control of all things and will one day everything will be completely good and right for his eternal glory. The twofold hope helps us to live in this time between the advents when things are clearly not all right. If we go back a few chapters, I think we see a great picture of the ultimate hope every Christian is to long for. The end of chapter 3 contains another one of those warning sections. Verses 7 to 19 present a clear call to heed the call of God to obedience and to not be as those Israelites who were prevented from entering the promised land because of their disobedience. According to Numbers 14.29, an entire generation died in the wilderness due to their disobedience. This is a clear picture of what happens to those who have heard the truth but obstinately refuse to obey the call of the Lord. They will not be permitted to enter God's rest. Chapter 4 discusses eternal rest as being grounded in creation, Sabbath. And again, we see the reference to the Exodus. Thankfully for the Christian, we have hope in the knowledge that one day we will rest from our strivings and will instead be able to rest eternally in the presence of our Lord and Savior. Verse 12 reads, So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Verse 12 flows right out of verse 11. Verse 11 is calling for those listening to or reading these words to live today in the hope of tomorrow, of the fulfilled promise of the eternal rest that will come in the presence of a covenant-keeping God. Verse 12 gives us a practical model how to live today in that hope. It says to be imitators of those who, who through faith and patience inherited, inherit the promises. So the author of Hebrews puts forth the challenge to imitate those who are already ex, have already exercised faith and patience 
and have entered God's rest. Notice something here that I think is very important. The writer does not say it is because of the faith and patience that they have entered God's rest. Because I believe that that would teach some form of works righteousness. The faith and patience instead are gifts granted by God to his chosen people. The immediate individual put forward to imitate is Abraham in verse 13. But I believe by extension we could look ahead to chapter 11 for some of those names. And by further extension, I think that we could also look at faithful saints that we have known in our own lifetimes who are worthy of imitation. What's interesting here, though, is this. It's interesting that God has chosen through the inspiration of his holy word, to give such a list of people for us to imitate. It's further interesting because all of them are sinful. All of them are imperfect. And all of them, at some point, failed to be faithful and patient. We need look no further than the guy who is in the next verse, Abraham. He certainly was not faithful, nor was he consistently patient. For instance, he was neither faithful nor patient when he had a son with Hagar. He was trying to fulfill the covenant on his own terms, in his own way. But why does all of that matter? What difference does it make? It matters because you and I are neither faithful nor patient in our obedience. We can have hope that when we fail, Our covenant-keeping God will forgive us. He will not fail. Not because of anything we do or are, but because he is ultimately faithful and patient. He's faithful to fulfill his promise to carry us into his rest. And thankfully, he is patient with our unfaithfulness, forgiving us when we fail. So this morning, I challenge us to go forth in the knowledge of our Lord's incredible grace, knowing he is faithful to fulfill his promises, to grant eternal rest in his presence for his people. Go, knowing that if you are indeed one of his children, that when, not if, but when, you are not faithful, and patient. He will forgive you if you call upon his name, that he will be faithful and patient. I also challenge that if today you are a member of one of those other two groups that I mentioned earlier, please do not leave this place today without first calling on the name of the faithful covenant-keeping God to forgive you to forgive your sin, which eternally separates you from him and from his rest. If you sense the Spirit of God calling you to himself this morning, don't ignore that call. Take the time this morning. Speak to one of the elders before you leave this place. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a faithful, covenant-keeping God, that we can 
rest each day in the assurance that even though I will inevitably fail, you will never fail. I pray, Lord, this morning that we would leave that if we are your children, clinging to that hope, that no matter what our circumstances, no matter what our situation, that you are a good and loving, faithful and patient God. I pray too, Lord, that if there are those among us this morning who are feeling the stir of your spirit, that they would not leave this place without first having come to terms with you. I pray that you would go with us this week, that you would bless us and you would keep us and you would make your face to shine upon us. I pray these things in your precious name. Amen.